The sermon this morning is part of a series that we're calling, Who Are We and Where Are We Going? And what we're doing this fall is we're thinking together about Incarnation's future. We're thinking together about the ministry that we want to have in this city over the next several years. Now, if you've been around Incarnation very long, then you've probably heard us say that we seek the glory of God and the good of the city. This is something that we've said from the beginning. It's, it, it's driven us from the beginning. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to draw your attention to the fact that this statement, the glory of God and the good of the city, that it holds together a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension, right? It holds together this vertical, our relationship with God, but it also simultaneously talks about the horizontal, the world, the, our relationship with the world, that as a church, we, we hold both of these together, God and the city, that both of, both of those two great realities sit at the center of our identity, um, in the New Testament, there's a whole set of letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to churches. And when he did, he held these two together. He always referred to churches in two realities. He talked about who they were in Christ and who they were in their city. To the church of God in Christ in Corinth. So all over the Bible, we see this multidirectionality of the church. The vertical dimension and the horizontal dimension. And what I want to do today is I want to show you that these two aspects of our life together cannot be separated. Now, there's a lot of fun ways to show in the Bible how our relationship with God is integral to our movement out into the world, and that our movement out into the world is fundamentally tied into our relationship with God. There's lots of ways to do this in the Bible. I've already referenced one of them, Paul's letters. He talks about who you are in Christ and who you are in your city. Um, we Earlier, we went over the great commandment, right? Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. There you see it. Again, so this kind of two-dimensionality of what it means to be a Christian, to be oriented to God and to the, the world in which you live, there's a lot of ways to show this in Scripture, but I'd like to pick a complicated way. Um, I, I want to share with you a way that at first is going to feel quite complicated, but I, th I think can really open this whole thing up in very fresh and compelling and, and, and powerful ways. Now, if you've got your Bible, turn to this passage that Tom read to us, Titus Chapter 3, if you're new to the Bible, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, if you've never taken the time to memorize all the books of the Bible, use your table of contents because this little guy, Titus, he hides way in the back, close to the maps, in between books that you might not have read before and your pages are still stuck together. So Titus chapter 3, that's just buying time, those really funny jokes, that's just buying time so that... You can find it. Very small. Very hard to find. Okay. Titus chapter 3. I want to start out. I'm going to try to open up why the vertical and the horizontal are inseparable. I, I, in other words, I want to do more than say they're inseparable. I want to show you why they're inseparable for Christians. And I, 
I'm going to do that by starting what might feel like 100 miles away from the issue. But let's go back there and you'll see that all of a sudden after a few minutes it's going to land. Titus chapter 3 verse 3. Three things about the passage that we heard read earlier. Titus 3, 3 to 8. Look at verse 3. This is the first one. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hated one another. So the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to his friend Titus, who's the pastor of a church. And, and he's saying, hey, Titus, remember what we were like before we were converted? We were bad. We were selfish and arrogant. And, and Paul is saying that, look, before I was a Christian, I thought I had it all together. I walked around like the cock of the walk. I walked around arrogant and thinking that I was wise. But now we know, like all the people around me know, knew at the time, I wasn't wise and righteous. I was arrogant and foolish. And I didn't recognize that about myself. A lot of people around me recognized it, but I didn't see it. That's the first thing I want you to see. I want you to see, first of all, that before they converted, Paul and his friend, they were in a bad place. Second, look at verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So this is the second thing to see in Titus chapter 3. It's this, that before he was a Christian, Paul was in a bad place and he needed to be saved from that bad place. He needed to be rescued from his arrogance and his foolishness. And that's what God did. God rescued him. He saved him from his arrogance and his foolishness. And he did it out of mercy through Jesus Christ. That's how God helped Paul see his arrogance and become humble. See his foolishness and become a wiser person. By mercy and through Jesus Christ. Now the third thing I want you to see is there at the end of verse 5. Where Paul says he was saved by the washing, get ready, really big word, of regeneration. Now, if you write in your Bible, underline that because that's going to become very important to everything I say this morning. If you don't write in your Bible, just reach over to your neighbor, underline in their Bible. <laughs> by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, what's so important for us to see here this morning is that God's salvation, which Paul needed and he got through mercy in Jesus Christ, it is a work of the Holy Spirit. And it's something specific that the Spirit does. Rebirth. Uh, that, that's what that word regeneration means. Rebirth. Uh, in the translation I've read, it's regeneration. Now, salvation, in other words... Being rescued from foolishness and arrogance and whatever your pet sin is. To, to, for that to happen in your life, it has to be a supernatural work of God. It's not something that you can achieve. It requires this outside power. This power of God. The power of the Spirit. Now, 
That's what we focused on last week. And the whole, the whole sermon last week, it was John chapter 3. You must be born from above. You have to have this thing happen to you. There was this guy named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He comes up to Jesus. He's a religious teacher. He was born and is a Jew, an Israelite, part of God's people. And he goes up to Jesus and he says, man, you're a great teacher. You come right from God. And Jesus says, stop right there, Nick. Whatever your agenda is, I want to talk to you about something else. You can't even know this thing that I'm talking about unless you're born from above. Nicodemus, all your knowledge of the Bible, the fact that you were born and raised a Jew, that, that's not enough. You're still responsible. You have to be born from, you have to have this new birth. Here's the way Jesus puts it at one point. You, no one can see the kingdom that I'm talking about unless he's born from above. All right. So the first thing I want to get on the table is that to enter God's kingdom, you must be born again, born by the Spirit, born from above. Okay, now just hold that for a second. Now jump over to our gospel reading, Matthew chapter 19. And I want us to zoom in on one verse, verse 28, Matthew 19, verse 28. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, now if you write in your Bible, that's a good word phrase to underline, new world. When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, there is a whole lot going on in this passage. But what I want to point out is that phrase, new world. It is the same word in the original language as that word back in Titus I told you to underline. Regeneration, rebirth. In fact, some of you in your Bible will have a little footnote next to new world. And if you look at it, somewhere in the footnotes of your Bible, it'll say... Literally, in the Greek, regeneration. So this is what Jesus says literally. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man comes to sit on his glorious throne. Now, what, what's going on here? What Jesus is saying is when Paul said, in order to see the kingdom, you must be Born again. You must be reborn. You must have the regeneration of the Spirit. Jesus says there's going to come a day when the rebirth is going to happen to the cosmos. The whole creation. The whole world is going to go through what Christians go through. Nature, society, politics, government, art, education, recreation, family. All of it is going to be birthed again. All of it is going to be regenerated by the Spirit. There's going to come a moment when Jesus returns and every square inch of the cosmos, both in nature and in culture, is going to be reborn by the power of the Spirit into new life. So, so what does all of this add up to? What's going on here is that we see that being born from above, being born again, becoming a Christian, that's how you enter into God's kingdom. But 
the kingdom of God is about far more than your conversion. The kingdom of God is about the work of God in Jesus recovering God's purposes for every square inch of creation, not just you. God is birthing you again to heal you, to forgive you, to bring all of his goodness into your life. And that is just a taste of what God wants to do with business, with nature, with justice, with politics. When Jesus comes again, it's not to take us out of this world, but it's to do to this world what he's done to you to bring healing and wholeness and new life and forgiveness. In other words, the rebirth of conversion involves becoming an active participant in the cosmic work of God in Christ, which is the renewal of all things. So being born again, becoming a Christian, is far more significant than you being saved. It's the whole thing being saved. And you're a part of that. Many of us have been born into the kingdom of God. We've been born again. We've converted. And now we need to see just how radical the converting work of God is in this world. That it's about everything. We need to see just how comprehensive. In other words, we need to not only have our eyes open to our own brokenness, but also to God's radically comprehensive plan. So my first point was to be a part of God's kingdom, you must be born by the Spirit, Titus chapter 3. My second point, Matthew chapter 19, the kingdom that God births us into is about everything being renewed. It's the rebirth of the entire cosmos. And we've got to see This connection, remember where I started, we're a Christian church. And so we seek the glory of God and the good of the city. And what I'm showing is that the reason these two things go together is because to be born again is to be born into a kingdom that is about the renewal of all things. Nothing matters but the kingdom for a Christian. But because the kingdom is the kingdom, everything matters. When the Spirit of God births you into his kingdom, you will at some point in time, if you keep following God, take the city more seriously than you've ever taken it before. Because you're born into a kingdom that is about the city. It's about society, it's about politics, it's about justice, it's about ecology, it's about all that. So you're birthed into a kingdom that's more comprehensive, more radical, more inclusive than anything you have dared to try to wrap your mind around. If you want to take the city seriously, then the kingdom of God is your best hope. When when the Spirit of God births us into God's kingdom, we're not only being reconciled to God, we're being restored to the original vocation of a human being to be agents of God's work in God's world, leading this world into its full flourishing. So since the vertical and the horizontal, the relationship with God and the relationship with the world, they find their intersection 
in the fact that God is about his kingdom. Since these two relationships are tied together, we as a church must be aware of two dangers. The first danger in this regard is that the first danger that a church faces, the first temptation to betray its birthright into the kingdom is when we rightly emphasize the need for people to be converted, but we fail to, we fail to connect their conversion to God's plan for the world. When that happens, when we emphasize the need for conversion, but don't, but don't then help people see it's a conversion into a kingdom, when we, when we lead people to think that conversion is only about fire insurance, it becomes hyper-individualized. It's only about you and what happens after you die. And that's a problem that some churches fall into. Their emphasis on conversion apart from knowing that it's a conversion into a kingdom. See, when you, when you forget that it's a conversion into a kingdom, you think that all is happening is you're getting out of hell. But when you learn, no, conversion is about being born into a kingdom, a kingdom that opens up on all of reality... See, that's, that's a danger for us, a danger for a church that takes God seriously, that takes human sin seriously, is to only emphasize salvation without connecting that up to what it's all about. That's a danger. A second danger is a church that rightly emphasizes culture, brokenness, Issues of social justice, the poor, the problematic moments of our society. A church that really is concerned with that but forgets that it's citizens of the kingdom who are to be culturally engaged. And that you have to be born into the kingdom to be an agent of the king. To enter God's kingdom, you must be born again. So... If the first danger is something that we see in conservative churches, the emphasis on personal salvation, but a failure to connect that salvation to God's work in this world through ecology and justice, issues of poverty. If that's a failure of the conservative church, the second danger is a failure of the more progressive and liberal church. The deep concern for social issues, but an embarrassment of evangelism. Or a forgetting that, that, that God's work in this world is through converted people, born-again people. That God's kingdom in this world cannot even be seen unless we're born again. When a Christian begins to see God's comprehensive vision for every square inch, every domain, every sphere of life, in our excitement about the breadth of God's kingdom, we must never forget that participation in God's kingdom must begin on our knees before the king, and it must return there again and again and again. Okay. Now, for the remainder of the sermon, what, I, what we need to do is we need to, to now take this and say, well, how does that play out in a church? 
How can we as a church avoid the two dangers? How can we hold together the the requirement of being born into God's kingdom and move into the world with radical generosity and, and deep commitment to mercy and justice? And how can we move into the world deeply committed to doing that without losing hold on this vertical necessity? How can we do that? How can we, years from now, still be about the glory of God and the good of the city and not have tipped over too far into either side forgetting the other? I think, The important key for holding these things in balance, for avoiding the the mistakes of the conservative church and the mistakes of the liberal church. I, I think the key for finding a third way through these culture wars is to recognize something about the nature of the church. And it's this. I think the key for a third way is to recognize that the church, and it's going to sound complicated for a minute, but stay with me, that the church is both an institution and an organism. Now let me explain what I mean by that and then show you how I think it cuts the Gordian knot of the culture wars in the church. All right, When I say that the church is an institution and an organism, the institutional church, this is the gathered church. This is us right now, organized under the officers. As an institution, I'm I'm the pastor of the church, right? We have officers, we have ministries. And what, what is the job of the institutional church? Here's where we have to be super careful. The job of incarnation as an institution is to sum up the praises of the creation to the creator. Our job as a church is what we're doing this morning. It's worship. That is the job of the... And you know what? We pay me to to keep us on track here, to do this every week. An institution has officers, the pastors, and, and the institution of the church is worship through word, through sacrament, and... Discipleship, to to encourage people, to teach people the Bible, to help us become who we were made to be, to worship and to teach, to serve, to make disciples, and to do all of this before the face of God. So as an institution, we are very focused and very limited. The purpose of the institution of the church is to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and to nurture the congregation as kingdom citizens. So when when you're talking about the church of the incarnation as an institution, there are only a couple of things that we do. We worship. We disciple. We tell about the kingdom to other people. That's called evangelism. But not in that gross way, we hope. But in a winsome, accessible way. Now, outside of that, worship, discipleship, evangelism... There is very little that incarnation does as an institution. Think about how much of our resources were put into worship. By far, the largest expenditure of our money is on this building. And this building is basically a room for worship with a little bit of space there and not nearly enough space back there, right? 
all of our resources. And think about how much time as an institution we give to this. The amount of hours that I spend working, preparing sermons. The amount of hours that people come up here and practice and get ready to lead us in singing. And all the volunteer energy and resources it takes to do this thing. By far, hands down, nothing that we do even comes close to the amount of money and people and building and any resource we've got for, but this. Why? Because unapologetically, this is the job of the institution church. It's to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, to disciple, to evangelize. Now, that's the church as an institution. But that's not the only way we exist as a church. We also exist as an organism. The church as an organism, this is when we spread out. This is when we leave here. At the end of this service, you're going to be commissioned. You're going to be blessed and sent where? Out of the sanctuary, back into the world. So the church is an institution. This is, this is when we spread out into all the spheres of society, into all the nooks and crannies of life in this community. This is you and I moving out into society as neighbors, as workers, and as citizens. So we gather as an institution before the face of God to worship God, to learn more about what it means to be citizens of his kingdom, to invite other people into the kingdom. But then we move out into the world uh, still before the face of God. But now it's not, a, you, Aaron Cook is not a lawyer for incarnation. His work as a lawyer is not under the institution of this church, but he is still, in, he is still our church moving out into the world. Rob Banta, a writer. He has another job that pays bills, but really, Rob is a writer. He doesn't work for me. Now, I have authority over the institution of which I'm an officer. But when he moves out into the world, it's not under my authority, and it's not under the authority of this church. He's moving into another sphere. But he's still a part of us, and he's still connected to us. And all of you, we're still connected to each other. But we move out into the world, not as an institution, but as an organism. And what are we doing in this world? We are entering every domain of our city through our jobs, through our houses as neighbors, through our political life as citizens. We're entering every aspect of our city, every domain of our city. And what are we doing there? We are citizens of another kingdom. So what is a citizen of God's kingdom, doing in medicine, doing in education, doing when you're a student at JMU. What are you doing at your job as a homemaker? You are there as a citizen of God's kingdom, and your job is to discover the treasures that God has put within that field and to develop the potentials hidden by God in nature, in human life, in all of these spheres. And your job as a Christian is to follow the light of Christ across the whole range of human behavior and endeavors in this world. That's the church as organism. Now, with that very important distinction in mind, let me show you how all of this comes together and shows you how we can, if we can hold both the, ver if we can know it's both vertical and horizontal, and we can remember that as a church, we also have two dimensions. We have an institutional dimension that has a very specific job, and we have, an or we have a dimension as an organism. If you can put all of this together, let me show you how it leads us in a third way that is both evangelical and progressive. Jeremiah chapter 29. If you have your Bible, turn there. It's our passage that we, our Old Testament passage that was read to us a little earlier. Some quick 
background on this passage of Scripture. Israel, God's people, have been conquered by the wicked, pagan, bloodthirsty Babylon. Now when Babylon conquered a nation, part of their strategy was to eradicate the identity of the people they conquered by erasing their religious distinctiveness and erasing their cultural and political distinctiveness. And the way they would do this is they would take the elites, the people with social capital, cultural capital, they would take them and yank them out of the country and take them back to the capital of their country, to Babylon. And their goal was that those people would get assimilated into the culture and the religion, the politics, everything, and that their children and grandchildren would no longer look like what they came from. So the way they did this was they would yank out all the cultural leaders, all the political leaders, all the religious leaders, all of the elites, all of the people with education and influence, and they would deport them and immerse them in Babylonian culture. And they would leave behind the people who didn't have influence, didn't have social capital, didn't have a way to really affect change. Now when they conquered Israel, that's exactly what they did. They took the elites. They took the people with cultural capital. And they deported them to Babylon. So here's this group of Israelite elites, they've been deported to Babylon, and there's a false prophet, a religious leader that speaks for God, but has nothing to do with God. His name is Hananiah, and he tells these Israelites in Babylon that God is going to take them back to Israel in just two years, so they should just hunker down, protect themselves, And resist any engagement with Babylon. Just hold the line. Refuse to integrate. But God, through the prophet Jeremiah, has another plan. On the one hand, look what he tells them in Jeremiah 29 verse 6. He says, increase in number. Do not decrease. Now, part of what that means is hold your distinct identity. Don't lose it. Don't decrease, increase. But he balances that in verse 5 when he tells them to settle down and engage in the life of the great city of Babylon. Build houses and plant gardens. And most striking of all, God calls them to serve the city of Babylon, the wicked, pagan, bloodthirsty city, and to work for its flourishing. Join, get in there and build houses and work with Babylonian builders and Babylonian gardeners. Enter into society, engage with society, and seek the peace, the shalom, the flourishing of the city. And look what God says, and pray for it. Love it. Don't hold yourself aloof from it as a culture despiser, 
but love this city, this pagan city, this bloodthirsty city, this, this awfully wicked city. Love it. Don't walk around always only critiquing it. Become part of it. Have a vested interest in it. Buy property in it so that what happens there affects you. And then he says, because your flourishing depends on its flourishing. And its flourishing depends on your flourishing. You know what all that means? It means because Israel wouldn't do it on its own, God put a church in Babylon. Israel in exile is the dominant image for the church of today. We, we could have looked at all these passages in Paul's epistles where he refers to them as resident aliens. That's what he's doing. He's picking up these two citizenships. We are citizens of God's kingdom and citizens of Harrisonburg. And we have to hold both. So think about how this helps us understand what it means to be a church that is both for God's glory and for the good of the city. As we think about what it means for a church to serve and strengthen and contribute to the flourishing of Harrisonburg. Let's put all this together. It means that on the one hand, as an institution, we cannot assimilate. We can't become some country club. What we do here, standing, singing, listening to scripture, coming to this table, this is distinct, weird stuff. We hold that. And as we do that, the church as institution becomes, this is the key, the sanctifying place for the city. Citizens of God's kingdom come into the life of the church so that they can leave the institution as they move out into their jobs, as they move into their dorms, as they move into their homes, and they can do that with the virtues that God's kingdom grows in us. Goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, forgiveness, self-control, sacrificial generosity. We, we move out from this sanctifying place as salt, as light, and we move out into our city. What are we doing in our city? We are working for the flourishing of our city. We've been fueled by God, restored by God, forgiven people who can forgive. People have been treated gently by God who can treat their enemies with gentleness. We move out in this world in order to lead it into flourishing, economic flourishing, relational flourishing, uh, spiritual flourishing, um, flourishing in every dimension. It's in the church at worship. It's in the church learning about the kingdom together. It's in the church praying together. It's the church as an institution where we are nurtured into developing the vision and the kind of character that produces the best citizen possible. Cities are blessed when citizens are filled with righteousness and kindness and goodness and peace and love and self-control and gentleness to become the very best residents of the city that we live in. We come together into the institution of a church to be sanctified. And then we go out into this world, wherever our lives take us, we are all, as Christians, as we move out into the world, all of us are full-time missionaries. All of us, in whatever domain we work in, are, are, are ministers, full-time ministers of the kingdom. 
There's no hierarchy at this point. It's not better to be a pastor than it is to be a homemaker. Because God cares for all of his realm. My focus is the institutional church. My wife's a full-time homemaker. Josh works in financial planning. All of these dimensions matter to God in his kingdom. In all of these dimensions, every single one of us are in holy orders. We are all God's full-time ministers. As we go out into this world, as teachers, as politicians, as parents and students, as pastors and nurses. And and my job as a pastor is Sunday after Sunday to remind you that you're in holy orders. That you're a full-time missionary. That you're in full-time service of the king. Because to be born into God's kingdom is to enter into this world that he is laboring through you for its rebirth. The hope of Harrisonburg, the hope of our city, the hope of our city moving ever deeper into paths of shalom, of becoming a great city for every citizen, not just those with resources, but a great city for all of its citizens. The hope of our city is scandalously pegged to the health of our church and the health of other churches. So I'll wrap it up with this. At the beginning of the sermon, I said, if you, if you take God seriously, you're going to take the city seriously. Because you've been born into a kingdom that is about the city. A good friend of mine says that whenever we gather around Jesus to adore him, when we look at him, his face is always to the world. If you take God seriously, you're going to take the city seriously. And here's the flip side. If you want to take our city seriously, God is your best chance. God is your best chance. He's your best ally. In Titus it says, you've got to do the good works God made you to do. Do you want to do what you want to do? I I, I think that there are so many people in our city who want the good of our city. They're laboring for the good of our city. All of, there's this amazing things happening in our city in music, in art, in food, in building, in justice, in mercy. There's so many good things. And listen, if you've not been born into God's kingdom, being born into God's kingdom is your best chance to do what you want to do at your very best. If you've not been born into God's kingdom, like it says in Jeremiah, Seek after God. Seek Him with your, all your heart and you'll find Him. And you'll find that you can be born into His kingdom when you come to His Son. And when you are, there will be a fresh moral energy inside of you welling up in you to empower you to do your very best desires for this city. And apart from being born into God's kingdom, you will never pull that off. Because the God we're talking about is the creator. He loves his creation. And he's going to make it new. Do you want to be a part of that? Then come into his kingdom. Do you love God? Then love this city. And labor for this city. And join us as a church moving out into the city in every one of our spheres, wherever life takes us, and learn to follow the light of Christ across the whole wide domain of human endeavor. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.